Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14. So people currently listening to comedy podcasts and people listening to self-help podcasts and people listening to true crime podcasts who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts. The point is everyone, new and existing customers, ask how to get the new iPhone 14 on us with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Are you thinking of starting a podcast? Whether yours is about gaming, K-pop, business, or reality TV, there's no podcast too niche or too broad. And there are listeners out there who love what you love. So let's hear it. Starting a podcast with Acast is easy. You can create, grow, and make money from your show across all podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Head over to Acast.com to get started for free. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening.
Ryan Burge, thank you so much for joining us again. Last year, our episode subtitled A Center Left Love Fest was uh, quite a popular episode. And I had a great time recording it with you. Uh, I had a great time recording it with you, too. But sometimes I know a popular podcast episode means a controversial podcast episode. So that's fun. There was a little bit of controversy that that kind of popped up around the Facebook group and stuff like that. But nothing too scandalous. Today, we are going to talk about a, a brand new book of yours. It came out March 1st. It's called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. I picked six of those myths that I was most interested in. But, you know, we might sort of veer into some of the other myths as they become applicable. But maybe you could explain, like, why should we believe you that these are myths? Like, what is the strength of the evidence? What kind of evidence are you bringing here as we talk about these myths? In the world of uh, no one's an expert on, on anything and we're all experts on everything, you've got to, like, use different heuristics to figure out who you trust, right? Yeah. And uh, this would not not have been my first book. You know, The Nuns is my first book that kind of hopefully established my credibility. But what established my credibility to write that book was being on Twitter and posting graphs for over two years before I got, you know, the contract to write that book to begin with. And what got me credibility to do that was I got a PhD in political science. Right. I guess I've got I've got a track record of just of just doing this kind of work and, and doing it. I mean, reasonably well, I'd hope I'm struggling towards objectivity. I am not in any way objective, but I think I do my best to try to fight the urge to be subjective more than. I think most other people that do the kind of work that I do, you know, I think the credibility for that comes from the fact that like I'm respected, at least reasonably respected by people from, you know, on the gospel coalition on one side to freedom from religion foundation on the other side, because they, what they realize is I'm just giving them, you know, the straight truth as close as I can get to it with the data and, you know, kind of letting the data free speak for itself by presenting it in kind of an, a compelling, interesting, visually attractive way. So I guess that's, that's where it comes from. You just got to trust me at this point, um, which I don't take, which by the way, I don't take lightly. I no, really don't sure. take that lightly. Yeah. Like I, I really, and I'm very like when I'm talking to other things about doing other things, like using my quote unquote platform to do other things. I'm very intentional, but I'm not going to muddy my brand by, you know, retweeting your stuff for money. Like that's not what I do unless I really mm -hmm. think it's good work that needs to be amplified. I'm just not going to do that because that would hurt my brand. It would hurt what I've been doing for the last three or four years. Why would I want to throw away all that work just to make a quick buck on this thing or that thing over there? So I'm very, very intentional about trying to keep my brand, my platform as neutral as I possibly can. So that way you trust the stuff that I put out there. It's well done. It's similar to being a journalist, I guess. I mean, you are a data journalist. I, is that a word that you would use? I mean, I call myself a social scientist. Yeah, I mean, I, I still see myself as being an academic primarily, although I still I feel less and less in place in the academic world than I did five or six years ago, just because the kind of work I do is sort of kind of pop academic, which is I do public facing academic work. Yeah. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Like, I don't think it makes me less than or more than, you know, academics who put their head down and publish in JSSR like Dan does, uh, which I also have done. Forthcoming. 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 Not out yet. Yeah. Not out yet. But I've done that. I published seven journal articles last year, peer, yeah. peer reviewed journal articles last year. So I can do that part. I just find a little less joy in doing that part than doing the public facing stuff. So mm -hmm. I don't call myself a journalist. I call myself an academic who does public facing, you know, scholarship which mm -hmm. kind of like rides the line between being a journalist and being an academic, right, right. you know? So I'm not a journalist in that kind of traditional sense. Yeah. So, I mean, this kind of gets to like, there is an epistemological crisis in the modern world today. We have had major, major breakdowns in who and what to trust. There's no simple answer to that problem. 
there is, you know, one stream of thought is essentially an anti-institutional stream of thought that says, well, all institutions are muddied in some sense. And so we need to find sort of lone wolves that we can trust. I, I wouldn't put you in that category. A line of thought that I find myself gravitating toward is let's be as empirical as possible. Not that every question can be answered empirically with measurable data. Certainly not everything can be. And some of the most important things in our lives have very little empirical consequence to them or measurable anything like my love for my child. But at least empiricism gives us something that can be checked by other people. There are more checks and balances. And your work comes from a thoroughly empirical place, I, I would say. Would you agree? And actually, that's how I start the book. You know, I say like in the introduction, like I think the only way we move forward in this hyper-partisan, you know, ultra-polarized time that we're in is empiricism. Because like, I know it's like an off-quoted quote, which like you can believe in whatever you want, but you know, the facts don't belong to you, right? You know, the facts belong to all of us. That's kind of my job is to kind of walk in the room and say, hey, atheists, you think you're right on this, but here's what the data says. Or, hey, evangelical, you think you're right on, on this, and here's what the data says. The data, and I get in so much trouble for saying this, the data doesn't care about how you feel about it. It just doesn't like yeah. it's just the cold, hard facts. And then now how you orient yourself to those facts is definitely up to you. But at the end of the day, the facts are the facts, you know. And so, like, I think one of the things that empiricism does is it helps us get out of our own bubble. Right. Which is like we all live. And even now, I think I think it was worse 20 or 30 years ago when you literally could not know anyone that like lived outside your town unless you like called them on the phone or like wrote them letters. Now you can know people all over the world. But I think in some ways it's made it worse because now you curate everything you have based on people who yeah. reinforce your worldview. We have a really hard time of understanding the world that exists outside our sphere. We also have a really hard time understanding the world the way it existed 20, 30, 40 years ago, even if we were adults, you know, sentient, knowledgeable, worldly adults 20 years ago, we do not have a good objective grasp of what American politics and religion looked like 20 years ago, because again, we were living in that same bubble 20 years ago. I will say this, the, the empiricism does not get us to objectivity, but it gets us a whole lot closer, closer to yeah. objectivity than, than the alternative, which is just like, well, 20 years ago, I felt this way. No, you didn't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you think you did. We interpret the past in light of our present. This is a yes. psychologically verified phenomenon. That's one of the benefits of, of empirical evidence yes. is that it's in stone. Now, like you're saying, interpretation of empirical evidence, there's a lot of room. But yep. that's better than the stalemate we often find ourselves in with loved ones these days where we can't even agree on the facts. So somebody mm -hmm. might look at your book. I would imagine that any religion data scientist would read your book and go, OK, at least one or two of these 20 myths. I think Ryan is interpreting the data wrong. And I would say, here's my take on the data. But at least you guys are agreeing on the data. It's just, what should that data be put in combination with to come to some sort of conclusion? So yeah, it doesn't give you pure objectivity. Pure objectivity is not possible, maybe in the mind of God, which we don't have access to. But it gets us closer because we are agreeing on some basics. And yeah. then we might disagree on interpretation. I had a situation where I was at, I was at university two weeks ago and there was a guy I respect and really love his work. And he said, I, I disagree with you on that one. I just don't say how you got from A to B. And you know what? He made a good point. And I was mm -hmm. like, you know what? You might be right, 
but the book's the book. You know what I mean? Like I kind of, I stay, I still stand behind the, the, that yeah. chapter of the book and still think that I'm right. I'm right ish on that topic. Right. But I yeah. think well, you're right ish. Yeah. But I think what's great about that chapter is it's actually the one that's, it's evangelicalism in decline. It's the first chapter. That's the first one we're going to talk about. Yeah. Right out of the shoot. Like that's the one that really gets everyone, you know, that's the one that aggravates my leftist friends. We want to believe that it is in decline because we see how harmful it's been in so many ways. Like I'm excited to talk about this. I think it is in decline in a meaningful sense, although maybe not numerically. Ah. I think that it is cratering in a certain sense, even as it picks up boomers, you know, to stop the bleeding of the young people who are leaving. That's my personal take. And and maybe you're going to argue vociferously against me. I will not argue vociferously against that idea. I think I, I really, the really the title should be evangelicals is not in decline yet. You know, I not, do yeah, think okay. the percentage of Americans are evangelical today is larger than it was in 1972. Mm-hmm. And the number, the raw number of evangelicals today is much larger today than it was in 1972. Because if it's, it was 17% in 1972, it's like around 21% today. So 21% of 330 million people versus, yeah. you know, like 185 million people, right? Yeah. So just in terms of raw numbers, I think it's larger today. But I do think you're right. We're like, it's peak boomer. Right. Like we're in peak boomer right now. And just demographics say in 20 years, if you look at like the the pyramid of age for evangelicals, like how they kind of distribute out through the age spectrum, like over half of them are 55 and up. Yeah. So it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out like in, in 20 years, a, a huge chunk of those people are going to be dead. And they're not being at the bottom of the pyramid. It's not being pushed up through to replace that big bulge that's at the 55 and plus. So, yeah, I do think they're going to decline. They have not declined yet, though, In which is not what a lot numbers. of people think. Yeah. In absolute numbers. Yeah. And by the way, the share of Americans who say they're born again self-identifies evangelical is just as large today as it was in 2008. The share of Americans that they've ever had a born again experience was 41% in 2018, which is the highest it ever was going back to 1988 in the GSS. So, you know, by any objective measure, evangelicalism is doing fine. I don't know if you want to say declining or not declining, but in a, in a world where we're secularizing rapidly, the fact that evangelicalism has not really lost itself is kind of a story to be told. Yeah. So, okay. We're, well, we're into our conversation here. We're no longer doing our throat clearing and sort of setting the stage. So, <laughs> Of the six myths that I picked out to talk with you about, uh, the first one is this one. Evangelicalism is in decline. This is myth number one in your book. Okay, so really quick, GSS, that's the General Social Survey for those not initiated. It changes somewhat year to year, but this is – when did that start? They've been asking basically some version of the same questions to Americans since – 1972. 1972. Okay, so that's why you said in 72 because that's just as far back as we have. That's it. Yep. Okay. So a little inside baseball on my survey, which led to my spiritual abuse scale and then some sort of prevalence data that uh, I'll, I'll be working on publishing in some form or another. I used a question from the general social survey about the Bible. Uh, how do you view the Bible? And, and one of the, one of my favorite moments of getting feedback from people who took the survey was someone saying that, the way I worded the Bible question was clear evidence that I was a liberal (laughs) and I didn't even word it. I took the wording directly from a survey that's been uh, around for 50 years. Maybe liberals wrote the survey, but I, you know, it is kind of older language. It it does seem kind of like seventies language really about like the Bible is literal word for word stuff like literal word for word is not so much in the lexicon these days. And so I wonder if that person thought, 
I was kind of trying to like goad them into not giving that answer. Uh But a big portion of Americans still say that they answer that question that way in the survey. So interesting. Okay, this is going to sound so like elitist. People who don't do surveys don't understand. Like, yeah. they don't think about this stuff as much as we do, right? They think people who take surveys think about the questions a whole lot more than the people who actually take the surveys think right. about the question. What that Bible question means is, what do you generally think about the Bible? Like, how do you put yourself in theological space? You know what literalist word for word denotes. You know, we're not going to get in debate of like Jonah and the whale and did the earth stop spinning and all that kind of stuff. What that means is I'm a, conser- a theological conservative. And if right. you think you are, you click that box. That's it. Right. Like that's all there is to it. People try to make it into a whole lot more than it is. It means there's three options, right? One is literal word for one. One's inspired but should not be taken literally word for word. And one is a book of fables and stories written by men, right? Right. And what that really says is I'm really theologically conservative. I'm theologically moderate uh, or I'm basically a not, not Christian, right? I yeah. don't have a high view of the Bible at all. That's really all of it it means. Mm-hmm. So let's not – overthink it. The other thing is you can't change the question because if you change the question, then you lose comparability across 50 years of data, which is a worse sin than changing the question as far as I can tell. When we're talking about whether or not evangelicalism is in numerical decline, these types of surveys are very helpful. Now, one thing that's interesting is you said people who say that they've ever had a born again experience. So that would go down if what? If either... People died who had had them and new people were born that didn't, Mm -hmm. or it could also go down because we interpret the past through our current uh, lens. It could go down because people are more likely to think of an experience that they had today as having been a born again experience. And so they are more likely to say yes or no. Right. I'm getting, is that the available options? Yeah. I don't love that question ever had a born again experience beyond saying like, holy crap, a lot of people have had a born again experience, which tells you like, because you're in this, what you're really good, the fat part of the distribution right now, you're getting the sample of people like who came of age in the nineties. So like Mm -hmm. Gen X is like the middle part of the distribution, which is showing you like the, the, the sheer weight and power of evangelicalism and American Christianity in the 1990s. You're still seeing sort of hangover from that. I think a lot of these people, by the way, it's not asking you currently, evangelical born again, yeah. right? It's asked if you ever have had an experience, which means you're picking up ex-evangelicals in there. Correct. But just think about that fact. Two in five Americans have said they had a born again experience in their life. That's insane if you That's think about it. That's a huge number. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're talking about like 150 million adult Americans have had a born again experience. Like think about the success. I don't care if you like evangelicals or you hate it. You cannot deny the fact like 150 million Americans have been touched by a born-again experience in their life. And now they might reject that completely, but it tells you at one point it had a huge hold on who they were. So, you know, that's the other part yeah. is like, wow, you can – I mean you can be mad at evangelicalism all you want, but you cannot step back and say they've not been successful. They've been wildly successful yep. by any objective metric. You would love for your tradition to have that kind of penetration across the American landscape, and they got it. So at yeah. least appreciate that for what it is. You know, what that makes me think of more than anything else in my own frame is plausibility structures. I'd love to actually think more clearly and carefully about this, like what role I think plausibility structures have played in the unique issues of American evangelicalism. I I don't know what I would put the percentage at, but I would I would guess it's it's not too far from 50 percent, by which I mean 
so much of at least the kind of stuff that I do on this show is about letting people know that there are other options that mm. that's really how this podcast started was just like, there are other atonement theories. There are other views of salvation in hell. There are other options around homosexuality and, you know, LGBTQ issues. There are other, you know, there are all these options about women in leadership, all these options about inerrancy or non-inerrancy. If you have a population where you're, you're at 40% of a population and that's including a bunch of people are Catholic and a bunch of, you know, whatever else. So you of of your sort of rank and file American person, the fact that it's so easy to find yourself in a community where essentially everybody, you know, agrees with you about mm -hmm. these things. And these things that you agree on are the fundamental facts of the universe and mm -hmm. God's revealed truth to humans. You know, just what we know about confirmation bias and motivated reasoning and how you know, even the polarization stuff that we've that has become clearer in the last decade, all that stuff, plausibility is such a huge part of it. Uh, and specifically, I think about Heather Griffin's ongoing work, uh, episode 123, which is currently my favorite episode of You Have Permission. And she talks about sanctified common sense, that in that world, truth is easy. Uh, everybody knows the truth. So if you disagree with me, it's not that you have better analysis or data. It's that you must be stupid or bad mm -hmm. because it's not hard to know the truth. That only works if the people in your group all agree on what that simple truth is. And you'll find that in small sectors. You know, you'll find that in a home church or a, a small Pentecostal church here or there or, or whatever. You certainly find that among atheists, new atheists and stuff. But when 150 million Americans to some degree agree on something like sanctified common sense, holy shit, the power of that. That's where my mind goes. Oh, I think about that all the time, right? Like it becomes like the dominant worldview of the place in which you live. And to yeah. reject that worldview is to reject all the social capital that goes with being part of that enmeshed group of people. So access to things like a good insurance agent, a good car dealer, a good financial analyst, you know what I mean? Like you lose access if by you rejecting that ethos, you're rejecting all. And I'm all, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a psychology guy. So you're like in the head, I'm a sociology mm -hmm. guy. So I'm always thinking about like what religion does sociologically. It's like, I'm with you and you're with me and we're the same people and we see the world the same way. And we sit together at lunch and you know, all that social mm -hmm. stuff. And to reject that idea is to reject, think about it. There are places, but it's 40% overall. There are places where it's 60%, right? 70%, you know? Yeah. So in those places, it is the dominant culture. And I'm telling you right now in those places, it's not just the dominant culture. It's the loudest culture because those people are loud and proud because they have no reason to not be loud and proud because everyone is like them. So therefore they assume everyone believes the way that they believe about the world. And it creates this reinforcing echo chamber, you know, feedback loop thing where it just goes crazier and crazier and crazier. I think we cannot forget that evangelicalism is still the dominant form of Christianity in this country. Like even amongst Catholics, by the way, I mean, there's a growing share of American Catholics who say they're born again or evangelical 20% now, including Mike Pence, our former vice president. So that like that brand I actually wrote a piece of religion unplugged called, are we all evangelicals now? Cause it feels like it's eaten 
all of American religion, whether you're Christian or not, whether you're Protestant or not, you're, there's born again Jews, there's born again Muslims, there's born again Latter Day Saints now because it's become a style, a right. brand, an ethos of thinking that really is bigger than one sort of tradition that it came from. It's not Martin Luther anymore. It means something right. bigger than that. And by the way, traditional evangelicals hate when I say that, but I think like you guys won, man. Like yeah. dance with that a little bit. Like think about that a little bit. Your way of thinking has changed the world, not just in the United States, but across the globe, that evangelical movement has changed everything. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know how much those people should rejoice in that. Uh, <laughs> I, before we move to the next myth, I I want to, I want to keep talking about numerical decline. And then before we move on, I do want to talk about moral decline and sort of declining credibility, which is why I don't think that those people should be rejoicing. But in terms of numbers, David French wrote a really interesting article a couple years back, I think during the Trump presidency, and it helped me fill in a gap in my own understanding because my circles are not the circles in which Trump support makes church attendance less complicated and, mm -hmm. and less fraught. You know, my circles are ones in which people go, you know, I kind of wanted to go to church this week, but like. My aunt sent me this thing on Facebook and I just like couldn't step into a church, you know, like that's I'm much more likely to hear that. But David French, who lives in Tennessee, he wrote this really interesting piece where he said, you know, I am live amongst people for whom the alignment of Trump support and church attendance can make it feel to them like America is in a state of revival because it is easier for them than it has been in decades to invite their friends to church. They have immediate shared common ground. The president whom they all support uses religious language regularly, and certainly all his surrogates do, and Pence and all of them. And so from their perspective, it's like a great time to be a Christian. And I know there are people in my wife and I's extended family who were not very religious like growing up and who are now more active in their faith. And it is, it appears to be directly linked to sort of Trump support and how that is so linked with white evangelicalism. And so it is really a tale of two Americas in that sense of how you perceive that. I wonder if you think that is responsible for some of the non-decline numerically. When I when I die on my tombstone, it's gonna be like Ryan. Here lies Ryan Burns, the guy who talked about non-attending evangelicals. <laughs> that is like that's like the thing that I'll be known for for the rest of my life. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about it and all this stuff. And like that's uh, the debate I had like last week was about that idea. Can you be a non-attending evangelical? I, I think the answer to that question is clearly yes. And I think actually in those echo chambers, what you're seeing is I grew up in the '90s where I had friends who were non-Christians, right? And they were like, whenever we tried to evangelize that non-Christian friend of mine, their parents pushed back hard against us and said, don't you try to proselytize my son. We can be right. whatever we want to believe. And now those people are the biggest MAGA Trumper evangelical non-church attenders I've ever met in my entire life. Like hmm. they've grasped onto the, the pro-life thing and the anti-LGBTQ thing and all those kind of things because partisanship is the magnet that attracts people to something. And then everything else lines up behind that idea yes. of partisanship now. The average person doesn't think about this stuff the way that the average political scientist thinks about this stuff. And we think about like partisanship as being like all encompassing. It eats everything. And I think this is like something that we did in religion and politics for a long time because 
interesting little side note, most religion and politics research for like the first 30 years of its existence were written by people at, at Christian universities, places hmm. like Wheaton and Calvin were leading the way. So they always wrote these articles in such a way where like religion was the first lens and partisanship right. was downstream of religion, right? So like religion, like have the mind of Christ, have a Christian worldview, blah, 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 blah all that stuff, right? We're taught in school. We were certainly raised as evangelicals to yes. believe that that was how it went. And, you know, it's you would know the data better than me. But in my lived experience, anecdotally, in a California evangelical church, most people were Republicans. It was weird that my buddy's parents were Democrats and they mm -hmm. were looked at somewhat askance. But it did feel to me plausible. And I think it's plausible looking back that had the parties shifted or something that they could have jumped ship like that wasn't inconceivable in the way it is now yeah but now we don't we think that people pick their religion based on their partisanship now yeah because we all frame this well now people are doing this i wonder if they've always done this we just never yeah. picked it up in the data because we weren't thinking about the data correctly right we were theorizing incorrectly about how the relationship worked the iv and the dv we had them flipped and we just never thought about it now we know right now at least in the current data that partisanship predicts religiosity much more than religiosity predicts partisanship because it's actually easier to leave your church than leave your party. This makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah think, of course. Think about churches that go through a discernment process around women in leadership or LGBTQ inclusion. If you look at who stays and who leaves, I think some people are persuaded by that discernment process. I think the discernment process, when it is undertaken over a period of time, it is more undertaken to make people in the church feel, listen to, to say, hey, come alongside us on this. And I think that is, by the way, absolutely the way to do it, rather than to make a decision and then pass it down by fiat, because I think that that yeah. is potentially spiritually abusive. But the people who end up going, so there's some percentage in the middle my personal take is it's the middle 25% or something like that at a church mm -hmm. that is like, okay, we could go one way or the other. We're leaning this way or we're leaning that way. And this discernment process will have some impact on our actual views. Everybody else will either stay at the church because they already agreed with a new direction or they will leave because they already disagreed with the new direction and they will find another church. Like anybody who's been through one, please email me if you've had a different experience. I bet that's been your experience that, yeah, this church I've been at for 10 years, the people, my pastor, my shepherds, they're going through this process and I don't agree. So I'm out like that's more common than I will engage with them in this process and really reconsider my position. I don't want to go through a discernment process because it's going to end in pain. You know, mm -hmm. like we're going to lose people no matter what we do. Yep. So like turning away from the rocks as hard as I can for as long as I can until I have no other choice but to hit the rocks is exactly what I should do as a pastor. Because you don't win in a discernment process because you're going to lose some people. What you're going to do is there's these ideas that have been burbling kind of in the congregation for a long time. And now you're going to speak them into existence against each other. Mm -hmm. And that hardly ever goes well, at least in my experience, in a religious context. It's going to be, I'm right, you're wrong, you're evil, yeah. you're sinful, you're not reading the Bible correctly. And some people, and not some people, a chunk of people, a good chunk of people are going to be upset, even if they come out of winning, right? And quote unquote, winning the battle, they're still going to be upset about that. So 
I'm actually fascinated by United Methodist Church. What's what's happening there? They're going to have like churches vote on yeah. whether to like go to the more conservative deal or like stay with the current United Methodist Church. Right. I would be terrified of doing that first off because most pastors have no clue of like how their people would actually vote in the pews because they don't ask them, you know, pastors aren't polling people. They just get a sense of like doing things. But imagine you trying to pastor a church where the vote is, let's say like 55, 45 to go, you know, to stay with the United Methodist Church. Yeah. How do you, how do you move past that? How do you resolve mm-hmm. that in the conflict when you know that almost half the congregation disagrees with the current denomination they're a part of, and more than likely is not going to change their mind over time? How do you, how do you steer a group of, which by the way, church is voluntary, it's a voluntary association. They can right. leave at any time for any reason. I, I, I think, and this is why churches, by the way, and I, I know that what this does is disadvantages LGBTQ people and women and minority. I understand that, but I'm just saying from a strategic standpoint, those are going to be fights that are going to hurt, not yeah. just in the short term, but probably in the long term. Now, if you think that's worth it, I actually think you should do that, but you need to understand you got to count the cost and there's going to be tremendous costs for you to go through a discernment process in your congregation. Yeah, you're you're right. Those are the sort of procedural and relational costs of these kinds of processes when churches make these big changes. Mm-hmm. One of Lisa Oakley's findings, spiritual abuse researcher around healthy religious communities, is that the process is more important than the product. Mm-hmm. That the way people are treated in a process is more important than the final end product. And she makes a very simple argument for why that is. Churches have to make decisions again in the future. They might even eventually make the opposite decision. They vote to join a different denomination. It fails. And eight years later, it passes. So it can't be about the product. It has to be about how did you go about it? Did you harm people in the process? Now, I think within that, there's a lot of room for different tactics and strategies and how much do you you know, involve people in, in what way? And do you do it more of a focus thing or a whole congregational thing? You know, I would be open to all of that stuff, but I, you know, as someone who's focused on spiritual abuse, I'm thinking about how the congregants are treated in the process. If there has to be some sort of process like that. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a good example of like how pastors think strategically about these kind of things. Yeah. When Illinois passed legislation, making same sex marriage legal, we got a lot of like directives, like legal directives that said, you need to like have something in your bylaw that says you're not going to do same-sex marriages if you're not, because otherwise you could run into legal problems with discrimination and blah, blah, which wasn't really true, but what, you know how like things bounce around in Christian circles about legality thing. Yeah. So there are people in our congregation who are like, we should put in our constitution, we're not doing same-sex marriage. And I was like, no, we're not. Like in my head, I was thinking, no, we're not. We're not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that. So here's what I said. I said, let's, here's what we'll do. We'll not put in the constitution. What we'll put in the constitution is any wedding that happens in our church needs to be voted on by the deacon board and a majority has to vote in favor for us to do the wedding because I know what's going to happen. No one's ever going to ask. Right. So instead of I'm I'm avoiding the conversation by put, I'm building in like this, this mechanism to help me avoid the conversation that I don't want to have. I think a lot of pastors are like me every Sunday and they think, they think, how can I, again, to use the rocks metaphor, how can I steer away from the rocks on this issue? Not that I'm always going to be able to steer away from the rocks, but like, how can I delay that as long as humanly possible? And I think a lot of times congregations are just kind of like muddling along, trying to avoid these, these pitfalls because they're going to be pitfalls, right? Imagine you're in a small yes. church, 20, 30 people. You can't have a pitfall like this in a church like that. Otherwise you, you disappear literally. So you got to find ways to kind of avoid these issues. One of the things that you're kind of, I mean, I, I really appreciate your honesty there on in, in a specific example like that. I think it's really, it's helpful. And it's illuminative, but like the rocks in this case 
are a culture war that is going to be fought no matter what you do. Right. Yeah. And I think that the rocks metaphor is great. I think there were a lot of churches that attempted to just steer away from the Trumpism rocks as in Mm. the short term for the entirety of his presidency and then hoped that when Biden became president, they would get some natural distance from the rocks. And what's happened is largely no. Uh, The Trumpist contingent of the church has maintained its numbers and its megaphone status. They have they have taken off their Trump 2020 shirts and put on Let's Go Brandon shirts. David French has been writing about this, right? They they are still a minority, but they're doing they're wreaking havoc. And a lot of these churches that, you know, and I think it's sometimes for good reason, wanted to keep uh, a space for people on either side of that issue to be in community with each other, essentially. And that is something that I am in support of. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah, I, I like that. But I think that what's particularly happened with Trumpism is that this numerical decline, which may not be happening or not happening yet, what we're seeing now is a moral and credibility decline. And that contingent is, I think, a big part of that story. Now, I know that that's maybe harder to sort of measure. Have you seen any measurements that that could sort of get at that, the credibility that the evangelical church has with the rest of America, whether it's seen as sort of moral, having moral leadership or or anything like that? It's hard to see. The problem is it's hard to isolate, like, how much hypocrisy people think about the church versus about everything. Yeah. Yeah, I'll throw this in. I went to a Rob Bell deal before before COVID in Louisville, Kentucky, where he gave a whole talk about introduction of joy. And he said cynicism has become like the currency of our age. And you have to fight the urge to be cynical now because it's like that's the cool operative condition is to be cynical, which Mm. I I mean, I reject cynicism as hard as I possibly can. Not that I'm an optimist because I'm not. Actually, I think I'm slightly pessimistic in my worldview, but I think cynicism is an awful, awful way to go through life. And so I generally don't look at the other side in a cynical way. I really think they believe the crap they're shoveling. That doesn't mean it's not crap, but I really do think they believe in the crap they're shoveling, right? Like, well, you will take a, a recent debate, right, with um, with Judge Brown, who's you know going to be confirmed uh, the next week, right? About what is a woman? And she said, "I'm not qualified to answer that question." She really believes she's not qualified to answer that question, and the right really believes that's a gigantic problem. Right. I think both those things can be true at the same time. And I'm not cynical about either of those things. Like, I don't really think they were trying to like gotcha here. Cause really, if you look at the law, like, gender is a huge part of like discrimination law in this country, like defining gender is. But I also think on the left, and this is where I come from an academic background, is we don't, we stay in our lane. Right. Like I don't want to define I I don't know how to define gender either. And I'm a social scientist, but I'm not a biologist or a chemist. I don't know about gender. I don't understand it on a DNA level. So if you ask me that question, I would say I don't know. Yeah. I would say it's socially constructed is what I would say because I'm a social scientist, right? Like right. everything's socially constructed. So you get my point here, right? Like I think both sides. I'm not cynical about either side. Now, do I think sometimes they pander to their base? Yes, but they pander to their base based on real concerns their base has over an idea. And for them, for a lot of people in America, they say, yeah, I know what a woman is. It's having a vagina. Like they're really like they're they're blown away that anyone can reject that idea. Mm-hmm. And listen, that's how they think about the world. And you can't change it, right? By being cynical 
then you're not changing it. But I also think there's a huge contingent of goes, I don't know what a woman is because I don't understand how biology and sexuality and gender all relate to one another to create these things. So both those things can be true at one time. And I, I just don't know how we get we get through that by thinking the worst about the other side. See, this is where I think this is where I differ from a lot of other academics who do the kind of work I do. They would never say this, but I think deep down they hate evangelicalism. They think it's mm. an evil cancer on American society. I do not believe that. I reject that idea. I think there's a lot about evangelicalism I do not like, and I do think there are parts that are caustic and bad and evil for American society and American democracy, but I, I have a hard time calling – 33% of the people who stand next to me in the checkout line, evil people. I just don't, I cannot do that. There are things in evangelicalism that are beautiful that talk about redemption and forgiveness and thankfulness and loving kindness, right? I think those are beautiful concepts. And to reject those things because they think that 80% you know, of them vote th thought that Biden stole the election, which is wrong, by the way, you cannot... Both things can be true. Evangelicals can be awful and beautiful all at the same time. And unfortunately, the drumbeat, especially on social media, is how evil and cancerous and racist and sexist and homophobic and misogynist evangelicalism is. Is it those things? Yes, but it's also those things and plus some pretty decent things if you really dig down under the surface. That's I think that's where I'm, I'm different from other academics. Everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14. So people currently listening to comedy podcasts and people listening to self-help podcasts and people listening to true crime podcasts who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts. The point is everyone, new and existing customers, ask how to get the new iPhone 14 on us with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply. Hey, listener, have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Whether you're an expert, a super fan, or just want to speak your mind, if you start a podcast about what you love, there's listeners out there who'll love it too. So let's hear it. With Acast, it couldn't be easier to get started. You can create, grow, and even make money from your podcast. You can get started completely free at Acast.com. That's A-C-A-S-T.com. I come up against some of this too in the spiritual abuse research community and people who speak about it publicly. And yeah. there is some contingent who will even occasionally say out loud as, as one guy who was quoted in this, this great new Republic piece. Like he said, he said, look, I think religion is fucking bad for you. He just said that he, with the F word and everything direct quote. And, and that is coming probably from, you know, a place of trauma or some, intense personal experience because the data does not support that position that religion is bad for people all things equal it just doesn't yep it's a yep. it's a complex picture stop being so conservative dan god dang it come on you gotta talk I, crap about religion on here even as someone whose job who is like making it my job to understand specifically what can be harmful about religion in some circles, if I don't sound critical enough of religion, I am not – that work is not really accepted. And yep. I recognize, as someone being trained in psychology, that that is not because of their converse – you know, how conversant they are in the, in the research. <laughs> it is because of some aspect of their story probably and also their peer groups and who they trust and what those people tend to say, just like yep. all of us are. I also 
could have a, I may be having lenses, biases through which I'm interpreting the research that I am unaware of. I'm trying to be aware of them. Again, we're not perfect. But to say that 40% of Americans are evil is is just obviously a gross overstatement. But I, I do think that there is a sense in which, like, let me, I'll get a little personal here. I recently flew back down to California to attend a memorial service for a former Bible study leader of mine. Mm -hmm. And this person died of COVID because he was not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And the nothingness for which he died Mm. really hit me. Like, what a f***ing waste. And that's not to say that everything about his life was a waste. In fact, the, the service was a good reminder of a lot of the ways that he was actually super supportive of my friends and I, and he modeled a certain kind of care for the next generation that made me even more eager to do that myself, to perhaps mentor younger men, you know, be involved in a youth group type of a situation or, you know, when it makes sense in terms of my life to do something like that. Like there is a lot there that ways in which he was very loving. And yet there is something about the faith that he had that was rotted, rotted out that he participated in some aspect of evangelicalism that I think of as kind of cancerous. And so like maybe a better way of saying this is like, not that evangelicalism is evil, but that evangelicalism has cancer. And the question Mm. is if it will be terminal or not, or will it eventually be excised to what degree in what communities? To me, isn't the better question, and this is something that keeps me up at night, is so evangelicalism is cancerous. I mean, I I will agree with you on that whole hog. I think there are things in, like it's it's sowing the seeds of its own destruction right now, you know, like slow agonizing decline where it's going to get more angry and more vitriolic as it gets smaller, which actually will make it harder to grow because it'll be so angry and so isolated. But my question is, we know that Americans are generally religious people, right? Like 90% of Americans still say they believe in God at some level. Like why in the world has mainline Christianity basically like gone on life support? Over the last 20 years, I mean, right. 30% of Americans were mainline Protestants in 1975. It was the largest religious tradition, the most established. It spoke, I mean, the power it had, by the way, in all spheres of social life is just undeniable in the 1970s and 1980s. Like, think about how much it impacted politics, like Episcopalians, Congregationalists, and Methodists basically ran government in this country for long stretches of time, right? And now it's a husk of what it used to be. I mean, it's 10% of America today. The average mainline Protestant now is 60 years old. There's 550,000 worshiping Episcopalians in this country right now. Of 330 million people, half a million of them go to Episcopal Church every Sunday. It's basically a rounding error in American religion when that used to be one of the strongest traditions in our country. If we're still religious, but evangelicalism is cancerous, it's not like our choices between nothing and cancer. There are other choices, yet Americans have rejected them almost exclusively 
over the last 25 years. And by the way, my bias here is I'm a, an American Baptist pastor, which is a mainline tradition. It's a, it's the reaction to the Southern Baptist Convention. We are moderate. We have female pastors. Some of our churches are open and affirming. We actually gave Martin Luther King Jr.'s widow a pension after he was assassinated, uh, even though we didn't have to because we believed in racial reconciliation back in the 1960s. So we are a progressive denomination by any stretch of the imagination, yet our denomination is going to be dead in 20 or 30 years because no one's joining it. My question is, why? Right. Like if you want to be religious, we offer a wonderful religious experience where we sing hymns and recite the creed and say the Lord's Prayer and hear the sermon and fellowship and take communion and enjoy each other and do all the things that religion does. And we had 12 people enjoy that experience yesterday. Like, why? You know, like, what is that? So if it's cancer or nothing, why are people picking not, you know, like there's not cancer or nothing. There's a third option, yet people are not picking, not that we're perfect, but we're not cancer. You know, not cancer, not as cancer-ish, not as malignant as they are, yeah. you know, and people are rejecting that. I I spend more waking hours that I want to tell you about thinking about that one question and about why that is. You said, you know, evangelicalism is sowing the seeds of its own destruction, you know, especially in this kind of Trumpist Christian nationalist yeah. ratcheting up moment. You know, the recent scandals, especially like Hillsong and Christianity Today, those ones make me wonder how much of the seeds of its destruction were actually planted in that transition, that Mm -hmm. they are sort of part and parcel of the model, right? That like one of the things about those mainline traditions is they have a lot of checks and balances on power. They have Mm -hmm. a lot of requirements for becoming ordained. They are hierarchical in some sense. They have different, you know, Episcopal church is more of like a Catholic style hierarchy, Presbyterianism is more local, but there is still a presbytery that can get pastors fired. Many of those denominations, the board or elders can fire the pastor. Yeah, And it, in one sense, like the Jesus movement, which led to evangelicalism, was a rejection aesthetically. It was a rejection structurally of that stuffiness. And that led to more space for charismatic leaders to do their thing. And the rise of Pentecostalism also had a lot of space for charismatic leaders to do their thing, that we could look to these icons of preaching to sort of like entertain us. It coincides with changes around television and and other forms of mass entertainment. I wonder if some of the stuff around, yeah, Hillsong Christianity State, like, like we just, there's something in that that worked on the baby boomer generation in particular. It worked so well. It was it was like the right thing at the right time to get tens of millions of them to essentially switch worship styles and faith community styles. But ultimately, are we just seeing the consequences of those shifts, those, you know, way pre-Trump, even even pre-moral majority? You know, the moral majority, I know it started in the early 70s, but it didn't really get going until the 80s, not in sort of critical mass when they switched from biracial marriage to abortion yeah. as their leading issue. So I'm wondering, what do you think about that? Like, is, yeah. you know, is it a longer cycle? So let's kind of talk through a theory, okay? My dad was born in 1951, came of age in 1969, right in the height of Vietnam, luckily did not get drafted, but definitely grew up in a countercultural movement, right? In the like Woodstock and, you know, smoking, you know, smoking dope and free sex because birth control became a thing and all Mm -hmm. those kind of things. There was a wholesale rejection of like, don't trust anyone over 30. 
you know, that was like a, a saying of the, of the young people at the time, right? Yeah. Reject authority. The esprit de corps was like, reject authority, reject institutions. Cause Nixon's, you know, and then Watergate, right? Let's throw Watergate on top of it. Right? Like, let's, let, we can't trust anyone. We can't trust older people. We can't trust the military. We can't trust our president. We can't trust anything. So let's burn down the gatekeepers and all the gates and let's just go the absolute opposite end of, of the way we do institutions, right? So the United Methodist Church is very top down, like you talked about. Catholic Church is very top down. Episcopal Church is very top down, right? Let's reject all that and let's start the house church model, which is radically democratic, little d democratic, right? Mm-hmm. From the bottom up, you can start a church in your basement with three or four couples. You're an insurance salesman during the day, preacher by night. All of a sudden, bing, bang, boom, Bob's your uncle. You got a church of 500 people. You build a mega church on the edge of town called the journey or the river or the bridge or the heck you want to call it. And all of a sudden that church becomes multi-site. Now you got 12,000 people. You've never thought about structure, organization, HR, or anything else. And those are the kind of churches are growing. And what, what feeds growth is growth. We know this for a fact, right? Like people go to growing churches because they're growing like that, that leads to more stuff. So we saw a decline in top down churches and we saw a rise in these little D democratic, you know, bottom up churches, and then add social media to the mix, which I think has done more to rethink authority than any technological advance in the history of civilization. And I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic there. I think that's absolutely the fact. Any idiot can get on social right now and with enough work and enough crazy, you can grow a following 10, 20, 50, a million people just like that, right? Yeah. And Pastor Greg Locke is a number one example of how nuts can go big. Dude's got 4 million followers, has autism from the devil, and has grown a huge audience by doing that. He has 1,000 people in worship on Sunday, but 4 million people on social. So go figure on that, right? So what we've seen is like bottom up has become the way that we understand authority, which, by the way, goes into the cynicism thing because those people are authentic. They didn't have to pay anybody to get rich. They got powerful by having good messages and good things to hear. So now what we've come to is this realization of, oh, my God, we actually might need some gatekeepers in society because if you swing the door open too far, you know, like Monica Linsky once said, which I think is a great quote, she goes, everyone in America deserves a voice, but not everyone in America deserves a megaphone. Yeah. And what social said is you get a megaphone and you're crazy. You get a megaphone too. So now we're in a spot, right? Where now we're thinking about like, wow, we threw all the gatekeepers out and they're all dead. We need to rebuild some gates and some gatekeepers, Like right? We yeah. need some sort of like bumpers on what you can say in polite society. Cause a lot of these pastors have no Bible training. They got no thoughts about HR and structure, organizational leadership. I think about Zuckerberg a lot. That dude is not equipped to run Facebook because a, no one's equipped to run Facebook and B the dude just wanted to make a little social network for people at Harvard turned yeah. into like a, a trillion dollar organization. A little guy who started a Bible study in his basement is not ready to run a church. 12,000 people. I don't care how good he is. He's not equipped to do that. So yep. now what we're seeing is a lot of people who have no business running organizations got there because their charisma got them there. And one good idea got them there. And they are not equipped to do that. We need more gatekeepers to come along and say, okay, you got it this far, son. I'm going to take it from here, right? Like I've run organizations and, and institutions like this size, and I will set up policies on things like sexual harassment, right? So now we don't have to deal with these issues in the same way. Right. Unfortunately, all these places don't do that because they they never had to do that. They didn't have organ, you know, they didn't have the structure in place to do that. So I think actually we're going to see 
is we're going to see the pendulum swung from way institutions to no institutions back to like, okay, we need some institutionalization. We need some gatekeepers because otherwise we're got, we got stop the steal and anti-vax and, you know, sexual harassment here, there and everywhere. And we work and I can go down the list and on and on and all the crazy that happens when you don't have gatekeepers. So actually I think we're going to see a reaction to the reaction when the first reaction was anti-institutional. Now it's going to be anti-anti-institutional. It's going to be back, hopefully land in the middle where it's like, okay, some gatekeepers are good. Some institution is good. Some structure is good because otherwise we get chaos. Or if we have too much of it, we get you know authoritarianism. There's a happy medium there that we got to find that we're incapable of finding right now. One thing it makes me think of, you, you mentioned WeWork. Jeffrey and I are watching The Dropout, which is the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos story. And yeah. I'm thinking about her and Brian Houston of Hillsong yeah. kind of in similar ways. Like what made them successful was an overarching ambition to be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, like Brian Houston was a pretty good, pretty good preacher, but really he was just like the guy who was willing, as I understand it, he was the guy who was willing to like fly to America, go to some of these conferences, learn some tricks, pick up some tricks from the prosperity gospel folks. And then he knew young talent when he saw it, like Carl Lentz mm-hmm. and like groomed those people to be leaders but it's not like he has a background in running a big organization, yeah. right? And Elizabeth Holmes, she just like grew up idolizing Steve Jobs, again, as, as I understand it, came up with an idea that would have been great if it had worked, but it never worked, but yep. managed to just sort of like leverage all of this image stuff and these, these narratives into, a, you know, a complete house of cards. Yeah, that is sort of the ultimate version of a certain kind of growth feeds growth where it is like literally it's really, it's black Monday from 1929. It's, it's the mortgage backed securities of 2008. It's like the appearance of, of goodness makes it explode, you know, growth wise. And so that, that's kind of my first thought. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. So I'm watching we crashed, which is a show on on Apple TV. That's based on the, that's why I said we were, because I watched it last night. And Adam Newman, the guy who started WeWork, had no idea what in the world he was doing. Has no concept of business. Just as a visionary guy and just started growing very quickly. They were losing $2 million a day yeah. at their height. And their whole thing was, we can't lay people off because that means we're weak, right? The momentum is slowing and we cannot yeah. lay people. So the only solution to our problem is to raise more money. So we keep building runway, we'll never run out of, you know, we'll never go broke. But the problem is eventually you run out of runway. Like you cannot continue to build a runway across the earth. And so as soon as they saw in, as soon as the, you know, the runway started cracking at the end, they're like, oh God, now it's over. And it crashes so quickly. That's but the problem is here's what Silicon Valley's done is it, it, it gets entranced by a good idea. And a guy who's charismatic at presenting that idea, whether it be Elizabeth Holmes or Adam Newman or, or Mark Zuckerberg, whatever it is, and they'll keep throwing money at an idea thinking, well, eventually we'll find a way for it to make money. I think the same thing happened with Hillsong, by the way. It was not make money because they made money from the very beginning. I mean, there's yeah. no doubt about it. They were making money with the music and all that stuff. It was, yeah. well, they'll eventually figure out how to be a big organization. If we just keep going long enough, they'll build the plane in the sky which is probably not the right way you want to build a, you know, an international religious organization that has churches in like, you know, 30 or 40 countries on earth has 150,000 worshipers. And you honestly have no idea what you're doing. Well, and that's, and that's all just unrelated to the moral issues too, of like, 
you know, sleeping yeah. with your staffers and all that stuff, which, but again, absolutely. Brian Houston, not particularly well suited for that part of the job either, <laughs> you know? So, he, but I will say like, does anyone have any experience running a multi, you know, multinational church corporation? Cause I don't know of anybody who could have stepped in and done that. Certainly not Brian Houston, who was morally impaired because of what he did with his father and the cover up and all those oh, things. That too, yeah. But, yeah. but I think a lot of the thing is success teaches you nothing. Right. Mm. It teaches you nothing because you're like, I did that. I can do this. And you know what the cold hard reality is? You did that because you got lucky probably and you had skill mm. in that one area. It does not mean that you can do this over here. You know, that's yeah. the problem. It makes you feel like you're a genius at everything. And really, you're just really good at one thing. And you need to hire people in your life to do the things you're not good at. But yet, if you do that, it makes you look weak. Like you're not, not as good as you think you are. So it right. creates this odd cult of personality thing. And I think that's the mentality we have to reject. And by the way, I think most churches, by the way, don't grow fast enough to worry about this, but many of them who do actually set up structures and put them in place to actually kind of put guardrails on their lives. So they don't do dumb stuff like this. I think that's a problem. I watched the Hillsong documentary on discovery plus. I just yeah, I'm, in, I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's too long, by the way. It's like four hours, and it's like, God, you don't, I mean, you're just kind of beating a dead horse, and they talk about Carl Lenz for like two episodes. I think – here's what I keep telling myself. Carl Lenz's story is awful. That dude is a predator. He's an idiot. I mean, he got way over his skis and all those things. But the reality is that you know, 99.9% .9 of pastors show up every Sunday and do their job with no fanfare, no congratulations, a, a middle-class income, don't steal money, don't cheat yeah. on their wives, and really don't do that much wrong, and yet we forget them. I just don't want to forget. Like The scandal makes people – it taints all of an institution, and there are bad actors in every institution, but we need to remember the fact that 99.9% .9 of people show up, they work hard, they do the right thing, and they try their best every single day, and there's no documentaries made about those people, and we need to remember that i mean it's easy to remember the crazy story not the, you yeah. know, the normal outcome i do uh, let me i want to push back a little bit on that so yeah. with some data now to be yeah. clear i have not shown you this data yet so mm. you i'm gonna read some stuff back to you from my spiritual abuse research some yep. prevalence data and yep. you know so you're I'm, I'm putting you on the spot so listeners should know that but i don't know that like Obviously, 99.9% .9 of pastors are significantly different than Carl Lentz in that they don't make a half a million dollars a year or more, and they are not famous, and they are not, they are not being <laughs> followed by paparazzi. I actually feel like it's a really interesting and open question to me. What percentage are doing harmful things? Most of them not on purpose, I would definitely say. But, like, listen to some of these findings yeah, go ahead. and let me say really quickly, not a representative sample of the U S population, but there are some reasons to take it close to face value. It's very similar to other findings from the UK. And so, you know, grain of salt, uh, but not precise. Half of my respondents were taught at least once or twice that they would be risking hell if they left their particular church or group, not denomination, yeah. So that's boundary maintenance, though. I call that boundary maintenance, right? Okay. Which is like, I mean, don't leave call my it, tribe. Call, but, to, but to say that you'd be risking hell if you went to a different Baptist church, you know, now this is people's self-report. So it's their recollection sure. of it. But that's a sure, high number. Sure. That's half. I agree. Uh, at least agree. once or twice. Four in 10 report being pressured to forgive an abuser while the abuse was ongoing at least once or twice. Now, if you mm -hmm. assume 
that many respondents do not identify as having been abused. I don't know. I mean, let's say 30 or 40 percent don't think they were abused in a church. That puts it at something like 75 percent who feel like they had been abused were pressured to forgive it while it was ongoing. I'm not going to be like defending this at all, but I will just say this. Most evangelical pastors who came of age at a certain time have no concept of what abuse is, mm-hmm. how it exists, and how to how to move on beyond that. Right. So they're using the tools they had in the 1970s in seminary. Yeah. To move oh, move beyond I, that. I'm not. I don't want to blame. Like, let me be clear here. I don't think that this data shows that pastors are morally worse than we thought or anything like that. I, I guess I'm yeah. just saying, like, and I think that is actually what you were getting at was like. Most pastors show up and do their job without fanfare. I think that's true. Yes. But to the question of like, when were the seeds sown, right? Like, yeah, this is maybe evidence that the seeds were pretty poorly planted by the Jesus movement and the evangelical community. I sort of doubt, and I don't have data for this. I doubt that people raised mainline were pressured to forgive their abusers as often as those with fewer institutional checks. I also think the main line were probably trained up in seminary to have a more that's why. holistic view of like abuse. And I do that's think, why. by the way, younger pastors, younger evangelical pastors probably handle these situations much better than older ones than their older counterparts. Yep, yes, I think that's I, right. I just think that's because we're more we're more aware, socially aware. Mm-hmm. But I think in, in actually I think in seminaries they are doing a better job now of teaching about abuse from people who can tell you about abuse because for a long time it was just sweep it under the rug, move on, forgive and, 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 you know, forget and all that kind of stuff. I do think that evangelicalism has had a reckoning with this kind of stuff because they're realizing it's not when it's like one or two things, it's isolated. It's idiots doing dumb stuff. But then you see it like in lots of churches, you're like, Ooh, okay, we need to really think about how we think about abuse. Yeah. You know, when I grew up, it was like, you went to your pastor for like depression and suicide, suicidal ideation and cutting and addiction. Right. And I think more and more pastors now are saying, wait a minute, like I'm not equipped for sure. I'm not trained. I'm going to push you off onto a, you know, a Christian counselor, which is a whole different debate about whether we should have Christian counselors or not. Yes. But it, I mean, it's a better choice than having the pastor counsel you. I think we can all admit to that fact. So I do think, and listen, I'm not, and if you've been abused by the church, I am genuinely sorry. And I, whenever I say the church, religion is good for people, I always caveat it by saying it's not good for everyone. Right. Some people it's have been usually abused by good the church. for you. People, yeah. Yeah. It's usually good for you. For the average American, Sarah Paribus, it's a good thing in your life. That's what the data says. Yeah. Now, if you're LGBTQ and you grew up in an evangelical church, then for God's <laughs> yeah. sake, do not go into an environment where they don't think you're a valid human being. Right. Okay. Right, right, right. Do not do that. But I do think the church is becoming more sensitive to its blind spots. And I think it's been painful, right? Because mm-hmm. of all this stuff that's gone on. And are they perfect? No. Are they worse than the average institution in America? Yeah, still probably yes, but yeah. I think they're making progress. And I think that to me is really, you know, we should kind of, I don't want to clap for evangelicalism, but I think they've had to reckon with these things and they have by and large. I think they have outside of like the independent fundamentalist Baptist churches, which those guys can just go, you know, jump off a cliff. But beyond that, I think mainstream evangelical churches, if you go to an evangelical megachurch today and walk into the pastor and say, I'm having suicidal thoughts, I guarantee you they're going to treat you in a much more academically correct way today than they would 10 years ago. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. So one of the things you said in your answer was, you know, growth, growth feeds growth. And I wonder if we might take the inverse of that and apply it to the the other question you asked, which is why is the mainline in such decline? Does decline feed decline? 
You know, like when you walk into the average mainline church building on a Sunday morning or view it via Zoom and see how many people are in there and how many of them have gray or white hair, you know, are you, is this a place of sort of human flourishing? It might be that those individual lives do flourish because of their involvement, but can you tell that when you show up? And from people I've talked to and my own experience, the the data is not great. You know, the pe- what people report is, is not great in that respect. Yeah. It's a collective action problem, I think. Like, I think if yeah. you've got like three or four like families, young couples together with a couple kids, and you all walked into an Episcopal or United Methodist yep. Church tomorrow and said, we're here. We're going to do this for a year and see how it goes. I think you would see a tremendous amount of growth and change in a positive direction because I think those those 12 or 14 people who join would then lead another 12 or 14 people to join. And then all of a sudden you've got positivity and you've got you know things mm-hmm. moving in the opposite direction. But again, it's a collective action problem, which is I'll jump in the river if you jump and you all stand on the side and wait for the other person to jump first. You really need to have like a coordinate. And actually, I, you know, if I've ever write a book about this, that's what I'm going to say is like you need Episcopals need to do like just give money to people and say start a church. Like we got mm. billions of dollars in the account over here. What are we going to do with it that makes any sense besides just give it away? They got the Wall Street Trust, by the way. The Episcopal Church is literally sitting on billions. They own some of the most prime real estate in all of the United States, actually all the world, right? Because wow. it's it's Wall Street in, in New York City. It was given to them by Queen Victoria, right? Like 400 years ago. My I gosh. mean, they're sitting, they they have $1.4 billion they bring in every year in offering and, and, and with 550,000 uh, attendees. So it's like, do the math, right? Like the math is crazy. So wow. why not just start throwing money at, at good priests, young priests who seem interesting and engaged and like a little bit charismatic? Like here's a million bucks, start a church. Do whatever yeah. you want with it. If you need money and if you show us you're you know growing and doing cool things, here's another million bucks. Because what's the alternative for us? There is right. no alternative except death. I think so that's death. what needs to happen is like you need to you need to like short circuit the process, right? Like artificially juice the process by using the money that you have and the legacy that you have and all these cool buildings and facilities you have and say, we're going to one last gasp this. And we might go down faster because we're spending this money, but I'd rather go down fighting, trying to rebuild this tradition that was beautiful and amazing and an essential part of the American fabric, as opposed to just kind of petering out and dying slowly over time. Hospice care ain't going to get it. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. young couples need to have an incentive to do that. And I would, I, I think there could be a revolution in America if they if some someone would figure out how to do this to get three or four or five young couples to join these churches all at once. I have a lot of friends who go to like a non-denominational, you know, big mega church in town, right? And I ask them, what do you like about it? They go, well, it's got stuff for the kids. It's got the, you know, youth pastor and blah, blah, blah. I like the sounds and lights. I go, you like the preaching? They're like, no, not really. Sometimes he right. even says stuff up there I disagree with. Yep. Well, well then why do you go? Well, because it's got stuff for the kids and all the, everybody else goes. Kids like, is massive. You go to, Yep. Kids, yeah, yeah. friendships. We go to lunch afterward. There's some people exactly. that we are, we're friendly with, you know? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, what if you could go to a church where you don't hate the message? I know. You don't right? hate the ideas yeah. and the kids can sit there during a sermon and you don't have to like hold their ears when he's talking about something you disagree with, whether it be LGBT or abortion or voting or whatever it is. Imagine you could actually hear the sermon and go, wow, 
I agree with like 95% of that stuff. Yeah. Like that, I mean, that's what we could have in America yet right now. Okay. So my community, Jefferson County, Illinois, about 38,000 people, rural central, South central Illinois. There are currently in Jefferson County, four mainline churches, minus one of them, 12 people on an average Sunday. The Episcopal church doesn't even meet anymore because they can't find a priest to do that. The ELCA and the PCUSA have joined together in one building because they couldn't afford to live separately any longer. There are less than 30 people in each congregation. The only church that's going to exist in 10 years in my county is the United Methodist Church, and they have to go through the split right over over same-sex marriage. Yeah. So in a county of 40,000 people in rural Illinois, there's going to be one mainline option in 10 years in this county. There's going to be 100 evangelical options. Everyone's evangelical now, and that yeah. is an awful indictment of American Christianity because we need all flavors of Protestant yeah. Christianity, not just one note. Well, so we have not been as data-centered today as I had made it sound like, but but I think we yeah. can bring in one of these other myths to, to talk about this, because I think that one one reason that someone might say, Ryan, this idea of like starting these churches, it's not going to work because people are not religious anymore uh, and they don't want to go to church. They don't want that kind of community. And so, sure, that's a cool idea, but you just won't have the markets not there for it. And one of your myths in your book is America is much less religious today than a few decades ago. And you say that's not true. Yeah. If you take out the nuns, the people who go to church actually go to church as much, if not more now than they did 40 years ago. Right. Hmm. So what we're seeing, and actually I'm going to write a book about this if I can ever get it like proposal and all that stuff. What we're seeing in America is polarization religious polarization, not just political polarization. And I think this is like the operative concept. A lot of people go like, I wish I could be more religious, but I can't figure out why. And I can tell you why it's because you don't have an option anymore, right? Mm. You used to be able to be, you know, Methodist, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Baptist, all those things, assemblies of God. Now it's just one note, right? It's all evangelical, non-denominational megachurch because what we have on one side are a, a group of very committed conservative religious people. And by the way, I said people, not just Christians, right? So yeah. conservative Catholics and Protestants, but also yeah. Jews and Latter-day Saints and, you know, uh, you know, pick, right? So that's like 40% of America-ish. And on the other side, you've got a growing number of nuns, right? So atheist, agnostic, nothing. But the thing is, here's an interesting point. Only about 12% of America is secular. As in, like, they reject religion, they think religion's bad, you know, like, they just have a negative view of religion, they have a scientific view of the world. That's only, like, 10-12% of Americans, but I want to measure it. A lot of Americans are in the nothing in particular category, where it's just, like, I'm non-religious, right? So I don't have, have a secular worldview, but I also don't have a religious worldview either, and I – and. By the way, as a social scientist and a pastor, I'll kind of merge both hats right now. Those people are the most scary people because they're the most helpless, hopeless people in American life today Hmm. because they have nothing. They've got at least atheist agnostics have like a reason to be. Right. They they a lot of them are incredibly political. They're incredibly mm-hmm. politically engaged. Actually, atheists, are the most politically active group in America. today. over 50 percent of them gave money to a candidate campaign in 2020. Over 50 wow. percent amongst evangelicals. It was only 22 percent. Right. So we're talking about these people are incredibly engaged. So they have a reason to exist. Their secular worldview, you know, the kind of they rally around human rights and LGBTQ and all those kind of racial things. They have a reason to be. They have high incomes. They have high education. Yeah. They're doing fine. I don't worry about those people. Maybe from like an eternal soul standpoint, the pastor hat would say, mm. but from like a social standpoint, no worries. Nothing in particular about 22, 24% of America. Okay. They have only 20% of them have a four year college degree. 
60% of them make less than $50,000 a year as a household, which means most of them live in poverty. They're incredibly politically disengaged. Okay. Like less than 10% of them put up a yard sign in 2020, which is like the easiest, dumbest, simplest way to like yeah. engage the political process ever. Right. Less than so 10%, they're falling back. Wow. Yeah. Less than 10%. Right. It's like, God, you can't even do that. Like, what the heck? You can't show up at a meeting and you can't do this. Right. So for all these measures, you're like, oh my gosh, they're unmoored from civil society. They don't feel like they feel like they're being left out and left behind and lost. And those are the kind of people who get pissy. Right. Those are the guys who like on January 6th go, the election was stolen and everyone's out to get me because they feel like everyone's out to get them because they're not moving ahead. They're seeing all their mm. classmates move ahead and get upper middle class jobs and make six figures and you know go on traveling to Disney World every year. They don't have the money to even go down the road tomorrow. Right. And so they're mad. They're mad about religion because religion doesn't work for them. They're mad about politics because politics doesn't work. For them. They're mad about business because corporations are stealing all their money. They're mad at immigrants for taking all their jobs. They're mad. They're mad. They're mad. They're mad. And they're growing in their anger. And is there data about spiritual but not religious, the nuns more broadly, and like opioid use? So that's actually the next level for me, right? Like when I do this okay. kind of work on like, why are these people like in trouble? That's the next level. And we're seeing deaths of despair go up amongst everyone, but I'm going to venture to guess that it's higher amongst the nothing in particular than it's atheists. Right? No, it's not that atheists and I was like, don't do drugs. Not that Christians don't do drugs because they do. But imagine you've got nothing going for you, right? Like you can't feed your kids. You can't move ahead. The job that you used to have doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that's got to create this sense of like, what in the world? We're not, we've hit peak America, right? Those people's parents were living in a really good life, middle-class life, right? A little bit of money. And now those factory jobs they have don't exist anymore. Right. What do you have left? And that's 20, 25% of America. And by the way, amongst 18 to 22 year olds who did not go to college today, 18, 22 year olds, half of them identify as not as nuns and almost 40 percent of them say they're nothing in particular yeah it's the most prevalent that's the option a third of young people today in america pick of college or not a third of them say they're nothing in particular i mean that's the kind of people i worry about because there's actually research that just came out that got published in the new york times it says the kids who are religious have higher gpas in, in undergrad grad school and high school compared to kids who aren't religious I mean, there's tons of reasons to say that religion is a good thing. And these people are missing out on this good thing yep. and they're falling further behind because of it. And I wrote a piece for CT where I show that people who are leaving church the most are the people in the bottom quartile of income. Yeah, They're falling behind. And now the social safety net the church used to provide for them, you know, help them get a job, help them get back on their feet, bring food to their house when they don't have any food. That goes away because you have no connections to those people and they don't know the needs that you have. And so now you're slipping through the cracks and falling further behind and feeling like life doesn't work out for you. And I don't want to make one and one equal two, but think about the incel movement, right? Think about mass shootings. Think about all the things that happen. And a lot of those things happen because of their falling through those cracks. And those people feel like they don't matter and no one cares about them. I mean, this is a scary kind of combination of, of factors that we used to not have because people at least used to be nominally religious 20 or 30 years ago, had a community, felt connected to things, and now they don't feel any of those things. I find all of that very moving and persuasive. I wonder if you've thought about comparing it to Europe, though, because Europe has not had anything like the kind of robust religious life that we've had for the last 75 years, really yeah. since World War II. And I don't know what if they've experienced that or, you know, like, mm. is that a uniquely American thing? Like, maybe you could say that in a country where there is a uniquely religious life, that to lose that, we're not really we haven't really developed the kind of things that would replace it. And perhaps mm -hmm. some of these European cultures have developed that because they've had far fewer religious people over time. I don't know. Also, they're 
governments, some of them anyway, some of like the Northern European countries provide for a lot more of those material needs. And yep. so the poverty is lower. There's a much, there's a higher floor in terms yep. of quality of life. And you know, there's all kinds of reasons for that. So I don't know. Did you, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Cause you're kind of, you're painting a uniquely American picture. Oh, here. I am. You're right on Dan. I think socialism there bu- buoys the work, the lowest person there the, the floor is lower or here in America than it is there. Right. Like yeah, right. you still can feed your family because minimum wage union jobs, they still have a, the average person un, unskilled worker. There's a lot better off the average unskilled worker in America. There's just no doubt about that. Yeah. That's a, but B is I think in America, what makes it worse is like the idea to be religious is to be like part of the establishment. I think that's actually gotten worse over time. Like I, I think if you look at the data, the more and more what you see is religion is for people who did everything right. Right. So, you know, graduate high school, went to college, got a degree, got married, had kids in the right order. Right. You didn't get divorced. You didn't have kids out of wedlock. You graduated. Oh, interesting. You yeah. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like religion's an established thing. Like I did things mm-hmm. the correct way. And if you fall off that narrow path, then religion is not for you. Right. But unfortunately, what's happened over time is that that path has gotten narrower you know, over the last 20 or 30 years and people are following, falling off of it. So seeing, I think what we're seeing is religion is an idea for people who've done it, have done everything right. And if I haven't done everything right, then religion doesn't work for me. It's not for me. The single mom, the divorced dad, the guy who never got married, the child free couple, like they don't do religion because religion doesn't really kind of fit with what they do. So it's almost like we have like a two tiered system in America today, right? The religions for established people. And I tweeted this out over the weekend and got a ton of retweets. Higher educated people are more likely to be religious, as in having a religious affiliation, and less likely to say they never or seldom attend church. Hmm. People are mind blown by that because they think about, like, I get science and I lose God. It's not that. It's people go to college and realize, wow, church is good because you can build connections to help you sell insurance and get a new car and, you know, find a new job, all those kind of things. That's what college teaches you is the value of social capital. So now you have a group of establishment people who have a ton of social capital. And then you have a growing number of Americans who do not have that social capital and are falling further behind. And all the strings that would attach them to social capital are being cut every single year because they're not going to church. They're not engaging politically. They're not engaging educationally. And there's no strings to pull themselves up by because they've all been cut over the last 20 or 30 years. And we're seeing this by sort of bifurcation of American society of the haves and the have nots. And the haves are religious or at least religiously affiliated. And the have nots are not religiously affiliated. Man, that is so interesting. And you're kind of bringing in another one of the myths that I had selected here, which was that college leads young people away from religion. And you're kind of rebutting that. It it makes me think about the sort of mid-century America when mainline Protestantism was the main thing. And that was very much an establishment religion, right? That was the way to have social capital, as you were saying earlier, is to Mm -hmm. be a member in good standing with one of those denominations, whether or not you believed a fucking thing about Jesus. Exactly. Right. And there was a problem then, and there's a problem now for true believers, you know, when these things become mainstream and become about social status, it, there was a problem for Bonhoeffer. There was a problem mm-hmm. for Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there is a big theological problem with that. But as a social scientist, even as a clinician who wants my clients to do well, I'll take uh, religious involvement and and helping with social stature so that they can have their needs met. This is really one of the interesting questions to me is like, what do we want for people? Do we want sort of spiritual heroes who really lock in to the life of Christ 
We do. We want those people. Mm -hmm. Realistically, how many people are capable of that? And for everybody (laughs) else, don't we want a kind of middle class? Like, like if I could choose right now between, yeah, you know, you go to a church and you don't agree with everything and there's some downsides, but your friend, your kids have some friends and you've got some Mm -hmm. friends. You give a barbecue now and again, you watch the game and theologically it's quite thin. Um, would I take that over disaffiliation and the things that that's associated with for a client? I'd take it. I will take a theologically thin church experience with some community connection to other people, less isolation. And maybe some of those people will be drawn into the more radical and beautiful and experiential faith that I have experienced, uh, at times in my life that goes beyond that conventional kind of socially acceptable, whatever thing, but I'll still take it. Their lives are still better that way than without it on the whole, on average. Yeah. And what you're saying is that college, which we think of as like, oh, college, you learn science. And so you lose your faith. It's like, yeah, people learn science. They also learn how to stay connected to other people who will help them make a living. And that includes religious affiliation in America. And it might not in 20 years, but for now it still does. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, I think it's it's because people misunderstand. I think about religion like completely differently, I think, than the average American thinks about religion because they always mm-hmm. think about the vertical dimension. Like it's about God and belief and dogma and doctrine and blah, blah, blah. I don't care about all that stuff, honestly. Like to me, that's like a sideline to the other thing. As a pastor, you might care about it, but not as a social I scientist. Do. Yeah. yeah, but as a social scientist, like to me, like I was just thinking when you were talking, like I'd rather have a church. So if you had a church of like 30 people who like were completely in like theological orthodox agreement with you on everything or like 150 people where 20 of them did, but like 130 of them didn't, but still win every Sunday, I'd pick option two every day of the week because I think that's a better community. Right. Wow. And I think yeah. that's what college teaches you. And I think this is something we've really had a revolution in how we think about the value of college. People are like, well, I go I go to class and learn about like calculus. I'll never learn calculus. Dummy, it's not about calculus. It's not about calculus or, you know, prehistoric, you know, paleolithic history. It's not about that. Heteronormative values. Not about that. You know, it's about learning how to navigate bureaucracy, learning how to deal with resolution, conflict resolution with your roommate when she stays out too late. Right. Learning how how many drugs you can take before you turn into an idiot. Learning how, when you can drink and when you can't drink. Learning you know, how much trouble you can get into and how you can get out of it. The social intelligence thing is actually much more valuable than the academic intelligence thing. And college is an ideal environment to teach you the social intelligence thing because there's guardrails, right? It's not just like the wide open wild west. We have, you know, there's people who can help you there. There's counselors, there's, you know, you got your, you know, your root, your RA and all that stuff. Your professors can help. That's where the value of college comes in. I think it's where people learn sort of by osmosis that, wow, life and community is good. You know, having lots of friends in a big social network is a good thing. I need to find a way to translate that good thing to when I leave this place and go into the next place because I realize the value, not just for me psychologically, but also sociologically, you know, from a democratic standpoint, a little democratic standpoint, but also just from a, a financial standpoint, there's all these advantages to doing this. So I think you learn how the proper way to live is in college, and then you translate that when you go out into the world because you see the value in that. That's I think that's honestly the true value of college. And that's also, by the way, why I think like commuter schools are dumb because you don't learn the value of like being in community in a commuter school. So like, I think there's, that's where the, that's where the value of college comes from. We've just been teaching it all. And I bought by the way, 
in church, the value does not come from the vertical. It comes from the horizontal. Yeah. I think we, we forget that all the time. I think that's if I could like change the way we think like mainstream, the way we think about religion, that's the way we think about it. We think about sociologically, not theologically because the social, a lot of people there on church don't give a rip about Jesus or the Bible. They come there because of the sociological thing. But here's a difficult question. And it's one of the big ones uh, that is directly related to my spiritual abuse research, which is how much of the benefits of religion can you get if people's vertical orientation is mm. undermined epistemologically? Ooh. So if they no longer believe in the inerrancy of scripture, if they no longer believe that their pastor or leader has a sort of special access to the divine, I think there are some people, maybe the more educated people who are there for the social connections or whoever that person is, they're not going to care because that's not why they're there. But yeah. the person that's there because of genuine piety, if that erodes, what of the value of religion will erode for them? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not even sure how to find it. It's one of my kind of like career long questions that I would like to pursue. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I wonder if those people, though, would appreciate some theological humility from the pastor, though. Hmm. Right. Like they would see like. You know what? Like the pastor gets up there and just kind of preaches his doubts or her doubts, right? About mm -hmm. like maybe there's three ways to look at this passage, and here are the three ways. And one's like a very like spiritual orthodox way, but one's like a very unorthodox way. Yeah. Let's talk about all those ways, right? Like maybe that's the value. That's how you approach that is saying, you're going to believe this. I don't know what I believe, but I'm going to give you these options. That is what I'm drawn to. That's the way that I, you know, I don't preach, but I podcast yeah. that way. And my guess is that there's a kind of limited audience for that kind of thing. <laughs> and cause it doesn't click any of the tribal buttons. Yeah. It doesn't trip any of those wires. How can you compete with the Trumpers? Yeah. I mean, do you want to compete? I mean, there's all these questions, right? Like, should we use the tribal stuff to get people feeling involved? Well, there are real problems with that, but the congregations that do it the least seem to be the most in decline. So mm. I, you know, I don't know. It it really feels like a, a catch-22 in that sense, at, at the moment anyway. I would love, just to give an idea, if someone out there wants to do a research design, I would love to do a research design where you showed Mark Driscoll and he's all strident and confident in himself and like saying things with such certainty. Like ask people to react to that. Because for me, for a lot of people, they, they're like, ooh, I like this guy because he's yeah. so like strident and so sure of himself. And, mm -hmm. he, you know, he grew a huge following by being those things. And some people love that stuff. I watch that stuff and my brain goes, holy crap. Like, that's like terrorist stuff. Yeah, I was turned off immediately and I, I was never drawn to it. But if 20% of people really love it, then yes. you're going to have an explosively growing church. That's true. Who also give. And be very involved mm -hmm. at the same time because the yeah. people like who are like, eh, I don't love certainty, but I'm also like, and that's like the whole thing is I, I, I made this point in a podcast the other day. I'm like, my brain does not do certainty. Like I yeah, am. But you're rare. Of, you and I are rare uh, in that sense. We are. I don't know if I'm rare. I, I, I want to think there are more people like me because I guess that's me not wanting to be think I'm a weirdo. Well, the listeners of this podcast, you know, who number in the tens of thousands are, are also rare. But yes. how many people listen to like in goop or like, you know, influencers <laughs> who just tell them 
things, you know, how many people get into multi-level marketing companies? I mean, I'm just saying, I don't think I am speaking to the average American on this show and nor is your work speaking to the average American. Can I quote Anthony Bourdain for a second? Please do. Like yeah, my, I love him. He's like my hero. He said, maybe that's enlightenment enough to know there is no final resting place of the mind, no moment of smug clarity. Perhaps wisdom is realizing how small I am and unwise and how far I have yet to go. Yeah, he's right. And most people don't realize that he's right. And even but Bourdain, I but don't, people love Bourdain though because of that. I feel like they, oh, that was I part don't of think why they loved him. Uh, yeah, but even him, like Bourdain was famous, but he's not as famous as Oprah. Like he was like indie famous, you know, like, and, and, (laughs) and the people who loved him, loved him in the way that people who love Wilco love Wilco, but they're not (laughs) Olivia Rodrigo. Like there's, you're still dealing with a numerical massive gap. And if you're talking about a church in a, in a metropolitan area, you can't just think in terms of the like-minded folks. It's got to have some sort of, if it's geographically based, it has to have some sort of broad appeal. But that's the, But here's what we know about religion. It's a marketplace, right? Like, mm-hmm. like yeah. some people are special. Like some, some products are specialist products. Some products are generalist products. True. And we True. need religion for all types of people. And that actually is what really kind of freaks me out about the future of American religion is we're going to lose a big provider of goods to the main line, right? To the yes. Anthony Bourdain followers. There's going to be no one providing those goods. And you know what marketplace theory says Someone's going to step in to take yeah. over that market because the demand exists there, yep. right? There's just no supply of churches to meet the demand that exists there. So from a market standpoint, there is going to be a mainline rebound. But I think the current brand, it's like trying to buy like a, you know, like a Toys R Us went bankrupt. And they, like people tried to buy the name Toys R Us. Like, right. is there enough value in that damaged brand to be worth it? I think that's the problem with mainline is right now that the brand is so damaged that no one would buy it in a bankruptcy sale. Right. You almost have to wait for it to implode completely and then rebuild from the ashes of what that idea was with a new idea, new branding, a new name and that kind of stuff. We're not there yet. And we might not be there for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And the sad part is that's a lot of people who are going to not have their needs fulfilled by religion because it doesn't yeah. exist for them. Yep. I agree. Well, that's probably a good place to end it on a note of, <laughs> Hey, those of you who are waiting for the next round of church, it might come in 20, 30 or 40 years. Although I will say I got pretty fired up at certain times listening to you. And, you know, I'm not in a moment right now where I can be a part of a church plant. I just am too busy until I'm done with school and and out practicing. But I my guess is that five years from now, we will be involved in some kind of church that is somewhat experimental. Like Mm. that just seemed like. I, I feel more and more like there's a real, like there's really not something that exists. We are moving to a new city in a couple of years. And so we will try some stuff and, and maybe there will be, maybe we'll find a church there that, that we really like. It's not a huge area though. So I don't know that we will. And I wouldn't be surprised if we were involved in something that was a bit more experimental, frankly. Um, and I love the idea of like putting that together and thinking through it with people and, you know, like a new project, a new, uh, uh, I love a good project. Anyway, Ryan, we got through Mm. three and a half of the six myths that I thought we would get through. (laughs) Good Uh, job, Dan. But it was a great conversation, of course, uh, as always. Anything you want to say, obviously we're going to put a link. We'll put a link to our old episode so people can hear that if they want to hear more from you and a link to the book. Uh, Anything else? And and your Twitter profile we'll put, which I highly recommend following Ryan on Twitter. 
Anything yep. else? That's really where you, if you want to connect with me, if you want to know what I do, just go on Twitter. Like you see where I'm, that's me thinking out loud, like working through ideas, through, yeah. through data. You know, it's, it's, some of it's really good. Some graphs really take off and do well. Some get nothing, but that's part of the process, right? Of like, mm-hmm. you get to see my thought process kind of like in real time. I, I try to be responsive to questions as long as they're asked in good faith and I have time to answer them, I will. So don't, you know, don't be afraid to engage with me. And, you know, I'm happy to have a conversation about any of this stuff because I think it actually makes me a better person, makes me a better academic, makes me a better pastor, you know, makes me a better Christian. I think that's really the goal. I think social media is awful and terrible, but wonderful all at the same time. <laughs> and I and I think we're better off when we discuss these things. So um, please buy the book, 20 Myths About Religion, Politics, America. And then The Nuns came out last year. I just signed a contract for The Nuns version two, which will come out next year, next March. Uh, three more years of data. Going to add a chapter about COVID, what COVID did to American religion over the last cool. couple of years. So it's going to be a really cool revised and expanded edition. I think it's going to have a lot of value to it too. So if you want to wait and buy a new copy, that's totally fine. But please support the work. And I know Dan probably says this too. If you support our work, we get to do more of this kind of work and we want to do more of this kind of work. So please help us do more of this kind of work that we love to do and we think actually helps you know, each other, helps the community. So Couldn't have said it better. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks, man. Everyone gets AT&T's best deal on the new iPhone 14. So, people currently listening to comedy podcasts, and people listening to self-help podcasts, and people listening to true crime podcasts, who actually can't stop listening to true crime podcasts. The point is, everyone, new and existing customers, ask how to get the new iPhone 14 on us with eligible trade-in. Visit att.com or stores for details. Terms and restrictions may apply.